Okay, today we're going to cover Psalm 4, and some of you who've read Psalm 4 may wonder what in the world is there to talk about in Psalm 4, but there's, there's actually, there's, there's quite a bit. So I want to read Psalm 4, uh, first of all, and actually there is one line in this psalm that shows up in the New Testament, and as we're reading through it, you can guess which one it is, but... Uh, Psalm 4, I'm reading from Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the Septuagint, although if you're following along in New King James or some other Bible based on on Masoretic text, it should be almost exactly the same. Psalm 4, the opening notes, it says, For the end in Psalms, an ode by David. It begins, You heard me when I called, O God of my righteousness. You strengthened my heart, when I was in distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you be slow of heart? Why do you love vain things and seek after lies? Know that the Lord has made his Holy One wondrous. The Lord will hear me when I cry to him. Be angry and do not sin. Have remorse upon your beds for what you say in your hearts. And then there's a pause. I think it's a company, a little string, string music accompaniment here, and then we resume. Verse 6, offer the sacrifice of righteousness and hope in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us good things? O Lord, the light of your face was stamped upon us. You put gladness in my heart. From their season of wheat, wine, and oil, they were multiplied. I will both sleep and rest in peace. For you alone, O Lord, cause me to dwell in hope. So just a few observations, and then we'll, we'll start to look through the, the uh, take this verse by verse here. So Psalm written by David. Uh, the, if you're reading in the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, as I mentioned before, it's almost identical. The verse numbering may vary slightly, so if you're following in a, in a different translation, when I refer to verse, one verse, maybe the verse before, verse after, based on numbering. Uh, and Paul quotes from this psalm in Ephesians 4. He quotes from verse 4 or 5, depending on which translation you're reading from, It says where it says, be angry and do not sin. That's an exact quote from the Septuagint from the Greek. It's, it's, it's word, word for word, letter for letter. It's an exact quote from the Septuagint. And um, it says here, the, in the introductory remarks, it says, for the end, in, in the Septuagint opening remarks. So what does that mean, for the end? Is it for the end of the song service? Or is it for the end of, uh, the end of something in the future? And so I leave it open the possibility that this could be this reference to, to, to the since David says it's for the end. This may refer to the time of, well, of the coming of Christ or the time of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I notice, let's just read through the first few verses again. You heard me when I called you, O God of my righteousness. You strengthened my heart when I was in distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you be slow of heart? Why do you love vain things and seek after lies? Know the Lord has made his Holy One wondrous. The Lord will hear me when I cry to him. So David's talking about God hearing his prayer. He wants God to hear his prayer, and he says, in fact, God will hear my prayer 
when I cry to him. And many people wonder when I speak to God, does he really hear me? Does God hear me or am I talking to myself or the ceiling? And, and does God listen to what I'm saying and does he take it to heart? Does he heed my requests or not? And David said that he was confident that God heard him and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So God certainly did hear him. But how do we know just because God's hearing David, how do we know God hears us? And why did God, did David believe that God heard him when he cried out to him? Now, David's attitude isn't God hears everybody. He's making a contrast here that he's living his life differently from most of the other people that are out there. And he's rebuking many other people when he says, he says, How long, O sons of men, will you be slow of heart? Why do you love vain things and seek after lies? So David is drawing a contrast between the way he's living and the way a lot of other people, maybe most other people, are living. And he's convinced that God hears him when he cries out to him. So why does David believe God hears him? And we want to be confident. Some people are just naturally, you know, God loves me. He thinks I'm awesome and he hears everything I say. And uh, uh, he couldn't be more possibly pleased than he is with me right now. Some people are in the deceived category. Other people are more accused, feeling like all the things I've done in the past and all the failures in my life, how could God possibly listen to me and hear my voice? So, if you trust your feelings, your feelings could be leading you off course either way. So I want to know, David believes that God, God heeded his voice and God heard him, whereas he wouldn't hear most people. Why did David believe that? And, and I look at a few other Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 18. And this is, if you're reading the Bible based on the Septuagint, it's, it's uh, designated Psalm 17. I'm going to start reading there in, uh, in verse 17 or 18, depending on your translation. Uh, it says, He will deliver me from my strong enemies, from those who hate me because they were too strong for me. They overran me in the day of misfortune, but the Lord became my support and He led me to a wide place. He will deliver me because He willed it for me. He will deliver me from my strong enemies enemies from those who hate me the lord will reward me according to my righteousness and according to the purity of my hands he will recompense me because i kept the ways of the lord and did not act impiously against my god for all his judgments are before me and i did not remove his ordinances from me I will also be blameless before him, and I will keep myself from my lawlessness. The Lord will reward me according to my righteousness, according to the purity of my hands before his eyes. With the holy, you will be holy. With the innocent man, you will be innocent. With the elect, you will be elect. And with the crooked, you will be crooked. For you will save a humble man, and you will humble the eyes of the arrogant. So, 
David's attitude about God listening to prayer was David believed that God hears the prayers of the righteous. And he describes what that's like there. He says, reward me according to the cleanness of my hands. And this is, I mean, imagining praying this to God, saying, God, I want you to bless me according to my own righteousness. Now this, in most Protestant circles, would be like the ultimate heresy of heresies to refer to yourself as being righteous. But David does, and he says, bless me according to my righteousness. This is not imputed righteousness. He's talking about the way he's living his life of actually following the words of the Lord. So he asked, to, 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 according to the cleanness of his hands, according to his, his staying away from sin, according to purity, according to his holiness, that he was living a life that was set apart for God, and that God will respond in that way. Let's look also in Psalm, and that may, may, some people may be discouraged by hearing that, but that's what it says. Uh, I think there'll be some, some perhaps more encouraging things here too. Psalm, in Psalm 24, which if you're reading in the, uh, uh, in the Septuagint, it's designated Psalm 23. Read verses 3 to 6. Who shall ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to vanity, who does not swear deceitfully to his neighbor, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and mercy from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So this is the same idea. Is He says, innocent hands, a pure heart, who's honest and sincere, who doesn't swear deceitfully, who keeps his word, that this is this is the kind of person that will that God will listen to, that will dwell in his presence. Um, on the other hand, let's look at the next Psalm. It's Psalm 25, which is designated Psalm 24 in the Septuagint. Start reading in verse 4. David says, Make known your ways to me, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember your compassion, O Lord, and your mercy, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my ignorance, but remember me according to your mercy. Because of your loving kindness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he will instruct sinners in his way. He will guide the gentle in judgment. He will teach the gentle his ways. All the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. Those who seek his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my sin, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he chooses. His soul shall dwell among good things. His seed shall inherit the earth. The Lord is the strength of those who fear him. And to those who fear him, his name is the Lord. He will show them his covenant. So here he says, and he's saying, bless me according to the cleanness of my hands. He said that before, according to the, the, the innocence of my heart, purity of my heart. Here he says, please, can you forgive me for the sins of my youth, the many sins I've committed in the past? So he is. he says, according to your mercy, God, 
Please forgive me for the sins of my path and show me the way of righteousness. So some people will tend to beat themselves up uh, as a result of all the bad things that they did in the past. And David doesn't do that. He, He acknowledges his sin, that his sin is great and that he's committed many sins in the past, but he believes that God is merciful and that God will forgive his sins, but he's also committed to a path of righteousness in his life. So I think I think this is the, this is the attitude of David in approaching God. Is not I've led a perfect life. He's not saying that, but he's saying I am striving, I I am leading a righteous life now and I want you to hear my prayers. And, and bless me according to that. So, <clears throat> now some people want to feel close to God, and they'll turn to the Psalms for some comfort and some reassurance. Well, you can pray the prayers that David prayed, including, uh, you know, knowing that God is hearing your prayers, if you have the heart that David had, which is striving for righteousness. And also understanding that God is merciful and he will forgive our past sins. So I think this is, this is the challenge. Are you confident when you pray before God? And is the confidence based on just a feeling, a false confidence? Or, 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 or are you straying the other direction of being accused by the past sins, which a merciful God has been willing to forgive you for? And people struggle on both sides. And I would encourage those to learn from David not to be trapped and beaten up by your past sins and by by an an accused conscience and by the devil. But if you have repented that God is merciful and will forgive you. Uh, David refers to people as being righteous and Peter does the same thing. This is one of the things when we this, when we covered in in, uh, in First Peter. Um, let's turn First Peter chapter three. Let's go back there. <clears throat> if we want to be confident that God is hearing our prayers, and here he specifically he's talking to husbands, but then he broadens it to a general principle. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, Husbands likewise dwell with them, referring to their wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together with the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing for, and then here Peter gives a longer quote from David again, this is, in, this is Psalm 34, he who would love his life and seek good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And here, from context, Peter's talking about how you live and how you treat other people. As, be, as being, You're either being righteous or you're being unrighteous. He's not talking about 
the righteousness of Christ being imputed to all Christians. He's, he's saying you need to, you need to, husbands, you need to live in a kind way with your wives, or just like David said here, God's not going to listen to your prayers. And that, that's something, you know, as a husband, I've got to take this to heart, is that it doesn't matter how many times or how often I pray, pray or how flowery my prayers are, if I am not treating my wife with honor, God will be opposed to me and is not going to listen to my prayers. So if I'm treating other people abusively, that's what it says, that the, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, the ears are open to their prayers. If, if, if I'm abusing other people, if I'm not loving other people and treating them with kindness and respect, then God isn't going to listen to me, starting, first of all, with my wife. Uh, it's the same principle it, it talks about in James 5.16. It says, the effective, fervent prayers, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. The effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much. Or I think, I remember from the NIV, prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. And then it talks about Elijah who prayed and stopped raining for uh, for three and a half years, and then he prayed again and reigned again. This is the, the, the idea of a person who is committed to righteousness when they pray that God will listen to them and heed their prayers. So I think that's so David's confident God's listening to him, but it's not because God listens to everybody, as he says right here. God, God, uh, the eyes of the Lord are open to those who are righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is, is Peter's addressing this to Christians, so this applies to us. Now, what let's move on in, in Psalm 4 here. And in Psalm 4, the next verse, actually, it's the previous verse. Verse 4, it says, Know the Lord made his Holy One wondrous. I'm reading from Orthodox Study Bible where it has his Holy One is capitalized. Now, <laughs> the translators call as to whether you capitalize something or not. In Greek, you can't tell. Uh, so the Lord made his Holy One, well, that is what it says in the Septuagint, the Lord made his Holy One wondrous. Well, what's the Holy One referring to? Is it talking about any individual who's who's seeking a holy life, that he made that person wondrous? Or is this pointing to, it says right in the, in the end, it's, it's pertaining to the end, is this referring to Jesus? The Lord, you know, he, his holy one is, is speaking of, of, of an individual. That's what it says in Septuagint. He made his holy one wondrous. So I will, uh, I'll just comment on that and leave it there that that may be, I can't say for sure, but it may, certainly it makes me think about Jesus uh, there. And then, this is this is the one that really has thrown me into a tailspin for the last few weeks trying to figure out what this means. It says, the Lord will hear me when I cry to him. It says, be angry and do not sin. Now, I'm used to this from the past. I read it, uh, you know, years ago. I was reading, learning the Bible, reading in the NIV. And I think it's quoted in Ephesians 4 in the NIV. If I remember correctly, it says, In your anger, don't sin. But what it says here is, Be angry and do not sin. That is exactly what it says. And if you, and in, the, in the New King James, it's a literal translation of the same thing. It says the same thing in Ephesians 4.26. It says, Be angry and do not sin. So I'm thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> 
this is the middle of a discussion where Paul's talking about don't be angry and don't be don't be full of malice and and and, and uh, bitterness and anger towards other people but he introduces it with this this statement from the psalm which says be angry and don't sin so it's like what is that all about here and so let, let's let's read the whole uh, passage from Ephesians 4 in context Ephesians 4 starting verse 17 so and this is one of the most important takeaways from the psalm is that P, the P, Paul uses it in Ephesians 4 to talk about how we need to live and he makes some very important points Ephesians 4 17 Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. And verse 25, it says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. And then in verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. That's from Psalm 4. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness wrath anger clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another even as god in christ forgave you therefore be imitators of god as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So so here's, here's the question. I can go back to this verse, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Is this, are these two commands here? Be angry? Hmm. Okay. Really? You want us to be angry and don't sin? Is that really what it means? That scene, it, Paul, Paul's basing his teaching on getting anger out of your life from a verse that says, be angry. Be angry and don't sin. So what do we do with this? Um, he's telling us, speak truthfully to one another and put away bitterness, wrath, anger, and malice toward one another. That's as He's pulling that out of this passage right here. So, so he says, be angry and don't sin, which is a literal translation. And then he tells us, don't let the sun go down on your anger 
and don't give place to the devil. I assume he's, he's meaning giving him a little platform into your heart, a place to start from. But the devil, you're giving him a place in your heart and in your life and he can, from, from which he can operate and expand his own mm-hmm. uh, evil, wicked operations. Mm-hmm. So I'm left with a few questions. I don't know about you. One of them, why does God tell us to be angry in, in the psalm? All right. Is, is anger always a sin? Does God get angry? Uh, did Jesus ever get angry? I get, I get pushback from that. <laughs> no, Jesus never, never got angry. But I, I think about when he cleared the temple. In, in uh, uh, John chapter 2, when Jesus cleared the temple, he made a whip, of course, and get, get these out of here, overturn, overturn the table. Certainly looks like he's angry to me. <laughs> so what is the Bible teaching us about anger? Is it saying that anger should be eliminated from our lives or that it should be curbed? What does it say? And, and so I was stuck on this, be angry and don't, do not sin. So the, as I'm thinking, you know, the most, probably the most common word in the whole Bible has got to be the word and, all right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what can I learn about the word and? Well, it's, if you look in, in Strong's, uh, uh, it says the word and, in the Greek word and, it's, it's kai. It can be also be translated also even to both uh, but or yet. So it's basically, it's a word that sticks together two ideas. And the two ideas could be complementary ideas, like they go in a series, they go together, or they could be two contrasting ideas even. Let me give you an example where that, uh, let me give an example. In English, we would usually use and for one and we use but for the other. For example, I would say he was engaged to his fiance for six months and then he got married. But if I said he was engaged to his fiancée for six months, but he didn't marry her, all right? You would stick a but in there because it, it's like this doesn't follow. This, this, puts a, this puts a change in direction from what you would expect. Mm-hmm. So we use an and in one and a but one another. Or uh, this is a little more uh, a graphic example. The shark approached the distressed swimmer with his jaws wide open, but he didn't bite the swimmer. You, use a, you wouldn't use and there. You use a but there in English because it's, a, it's like this isn't what you expect. This is a change in direction, the two. So uh, I, I found one example where the word and is used, but the translators into English, well, the Kai, will switch it over to but. Okay, this is an example. Mark 6, verses 18 to 19. It says, uh, John... This is John the Baptist, had said to Herod, it's not lawful you for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. All right? So you get the idea. This is the same word is used there, which was usually translated and in the Bible, but the, the translators are looking and say, well, this obviously, this but in English makes more sense. And in, 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 in Greek, it can be two similar uh, ideas or one that's, that's kind of off-kilter with the other one. So basically, uh, I think what, what we would say in English, it's perfectly, uh, uh, perfectly legitimate the way it's expressed here in, in the language, but what way we would normally say this in English is be angry, but don't sin. Right? The two ideas are connected, but one is, one puts, uh, puts a... a restriction on the other. It, it puts a change on the other. Mm-hmm. 
So that makes the most sense to me. And, and like the NIV, well, I learned in the NIV, in your anger, don't sin. It's like you can be angry, but don't take it to the point of sin. There's limits on your anger. And I think of this as like if you're, if you're you know, dogs. Uh, there's plenty of people. Have, we don't have any dogs. Plenty of people around where we live have dogs. And so uh, in the, in the, we, we, when you go in the fells, people usually let their dogs run wild. All right. But if you're going into a, a regular park, people, they'll have a little sign out there that'll say either no dogs or it will say dogs are allowed, but they must be on a leash. All right. Meaning your dog can be there, but you have to keep it under control. And I think it's the same idea that God is saying here. Okay. You can have anger, but there are limits. You have to keep it under control. And Paul says here, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He doesn't say, don't ever be angry. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So there's limits on it. There's limits for one thing in terms of time is you don't let it drag on. God will allow us to be angry for a period of time. And, uh, but he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And Jesus says the same thing. Settle matters quickly. If you're angry with your brother, your brother has, has some, uh, is angry with you, you need to get things resolved quickly. Don't let the, the anger linger. That will give Satan a place in your heart to take over and destroy you from the inside. Uh, some comments from early Christians on this along this line. Tertullian is, is commenting about this. He says, be angry and sin not. That is, don't persevere in anger or be enraged. So it's saying, okay, this is saying, <laughs> you got to control your anger like a dog on a leash. You don't just let it rip. You don't let it turn into unrighteous rage. All right. And, and, and you can't persevere in it. You can't let it last very long. So... And that seems reasonable to me. That's in uh, uh, against Marcion, uh, Book Two, Chapter Nineteen, and Anna Nineteen Fathers, Volume Three, Page Three Twelve. There's a, there's a there's a longer quote from the Apostolic Constitutions, uh, which is a compilation of some earlier attitudes, but it's talking about it pulls together this, this idea of anger among Christians. And uh, with several different scriptures, including one from Psalm 4. So I'm going to read it to you. It says, Be therefore righteous judges, peacemakers, without and without anger. So he's writing to the Christians. For he that is angry with his brother without cause is subject to judgment. Of course, that's Matthew 5.22. But if it happens that by anyone's contrivance you're angry at anybody, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's Ephesians 4.26. For David says, be angry and sin not. That's Psalm 4.4. That is, be soon reconciled, lest your wrath continue so long that it turn to a settled hatred and work sin. For the souls of those that bear a settled hatred are to death. That's from a quote from uh, Proverbs 12.28 and Septuagint. says Solomon. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says in the Gospels, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has anything against you, 
Leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift to God. Of course, that's Matthew 5, 23, 24. Now, the gift of God, so you see he's making, they're making the point, so before you offer your gift, what's the gift referring to? He says, now the gift to God is everyone's prayer and thanksgiving. If therefore you have anything against your brother or he has anything against you, neither will your prayers be heard. Nor will your thanksgiving be accepted by reason of that hidden anger. But it is your duty, brothers, to pray continually. Yet because God hears not those which are at enmity with their brothers by unjust quarrels, even though they should pray three times an hour, it's our duty to compose all our enmity and littleness of soul that we may be able to pray with a pure and unpolluted heart. For the Lord commanded us to love even our enemies and by no means to hate our friends. And the lawgiver says, this is a quote from uh, Leviticus 19, you shall not hate any man and shall not hate your brother in your mind. You shall certainly reprove your brother and not incur sin on his account. That's Leviticus 19.17, which is right before the, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. It says you, know, you reprove your brother and be, be uh, uh, so that you won't be uh, pulled into sin. And don't hate your brother. You can't do that. That's from Absolute Constitutions, Book 2, check, Section 6, and Nicene Fathers, Volume 7, page 419. So this is, this is, this is the principle that, that God is looking for in us, is that anger is not necessarily always wrong, but it better be under control, and it better be resolved quickly. And if we want to offer our gift, meaning our prayers, then we need to we, we need to do that before we pray. That's the gift that, that Jesus is talking about, which makes perfect sense to me. Uh, now, the whole idea about God being angry, and for one of the things in, in, in Ephesians uh, 4 and 5, it says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Now, is God ever angry? And we suppose is that, that God does get angry, uh, so how does that all fit together with anger and 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 us and God? There's a there's a there's a quote from um, Lactantius that talks about anger. He's talking about the anger of God and the anger of man. He says there remains one question, and that the last. For some will perhaps say God is so far from being angry in His precepts, He even forget forbids man to be angry. He says God's not angry, and so He doesn't want man to be angry either. I might say the anger of man ought to be curbed, because he's often angry unjustly, and he has immediate emotion because he's only for a time. Therefore, lest those things should be done which the low and the moderate station, and great kings do in their anger, his rage ought to have been moderated and suppressed, lest being out of his mind he should commit some inexpiable crime. But God is not angry for a short time, because he is eternal and of perfect virtue, and he is never angry unless justly deserved. But however, the matter is not so. For if he should altogether prohibit anger, he himself would have been in some measure the censure of his own workmanship. So since God can't, God can't, how can God condemn all anger? Because God gets angry himself. Anger isn't necessarily a sin. 
And he continues a little further on. He says, therefore, he does not altogether prohibit anger because that affection is necessarily given, but he forbids us to persevere in anger. For the anger of mortals ought to be mortal. For if it is lasting, enmity is strengthened to lasting destruction. Then again, when he enjoined us to be angry and yet not to sin, it is plain he did not tear up anger by the roots, but restrained it, that in every correction we might preserve moderation and justice. Therefore, he who commands us to be angry is manifestly himself angry. He who enjoins us to be quickly appeased is manifestly himself easy to be appeased. He has enjoined those things which are just and useful in the interests of society. But because I had said the anger of God is not for a time only, as is the case with man, who becomes inflamed with an immediate excitement on account of his frailty and is unable to easily govern himself, we ought to understand that because God is eternal, his anger also remains to eternity. So think about that. Is that God is slow to anger, but God's anger remains to eternity. But on the other hand, that because he is endued with the greatest excellence, he controls his anger and is not ruled by it, but that he regulates it according to his will. And it is plain that this is not opposed to that which has just been said. For if his anger had been altogether immortal, there would be no place after a fault for satisfaction or kind feeling, though he himself commands men to be reconciled before the setting of the sun. But the divine anger remains forever against those who ever sin. Therefore God is appeased not by incense or a victim, not by costly offerings, which things are all corruptible, but by a reformation of the morals. He who ceases to sin renders the anger of God mortal. For this reason he does not immediately punish everyone who is guilty, that man may have the opportunity of coming to a right mind and correcting himself. I mean, this is, to me, this is, is really helpful for me to see this because uh, you, you see the importance of the fear of God and why that didn't go away with the coming of Jesus. Jesus taught the fear of the Lord. He said, don't fear a man who can kill the body but, but no one else in Matthew 10. He says, fear, fear him who can cast both, both soul and spirit into hell fire. So God is slow to anger, and he's quick to turn his anger away when we repent and turn back to him. He's quick to forgive us. But anger is in the character of God. He, it is a just anger. It is a perfectly controlled anger. Okay? And that's maybe hard for us to hear. Some, I know some have grown up in households under fathers who had real problems with anger. Or mothers who had real problems with anger, who would fly off the handle, and and would would fly into a fit of rage, and to to connect with that as being anything like the character of God is just is is as horrifying. But say no, God God can get angry with us. We do need to be afraid of Him, but it's not an unrighteous anger. It's not it's not a out of control anger, and he's slow to anger, and he and he's quick to forgive. To see that is part of the character of God. So anger is something, according to to uh, uh, Lactantius, this is in Anti-Scene Fathers, Volume Seven, Page Two Seventy Seven. 
that anger is not always sinful, but we've got to keep it under a tight rein. We've got to curb it. You can't let it rip, and you can't let it linger either. Mm. Okay? So, this is important to me. Um, Anger has played a pretty big role in my life. Okay? Um... I am very grateful for the upbringing I had, many blessings from my parents, my grandparents, but I know I'm not, this is not to denigrate them at all. But I say anger played a pretty, pretty significant role in my family for generations, and more than one or two. And this is something that I really have to watch and keep under a tight rein. I can very easily become angry or become bitter, and it may not come out in a an explosive fit of rage. I'm not necessarily prone to that, but it can be seething under the surface, and it can come out it can come out just the same. And it can cause tremendous destruction that way. You know, anger sometimes there's a lot of different things that, 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 that cause people to, to fall into depression. One of them is people who are angry at something, but they don't express it. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't deal with it, and it, they, just, they just stuff it, and, and it, just, it just grinds them down, wears them down on the inside. So anger is a, is a, is a big problem. Um, so I think it, it's it's hard for me to look at this anger thing because of anger in my own life, in my own character, and also anger in in the life of people who've been pretty formative in in my own uh, my own life. But to, to see, it, it, to me, it's it's a little bit like alcohol. Okay, uh, I'll have at night, and some people may be horrified by this. I'll have at night. I'll have one glass of wine, and that's all I have. Okay. That's all I have. I have one glass of alcohol, one glass of wine at night with dinner. I don't have two. I don't have one and a half. And that's it. And uh, I'm not addicted to it. If I don't have it, that's fine. But, but, but I'll, I'll do that. Some people think it's good for your, for your heart. Um, but I've also seen the damage that alcohol has done to my friends and you know people I'm very close to it's tr- some tremendous damage that it's caused but but the idea is you have to keep a tight rein on this or it will destroy you it's the same thing with anger i believe uh now I make my make my living as a water engineer and one of the things water's great stuff without <laughs> without water you don't have life so water's good stuff but water when it's out of control, is scary. Okay? You've got pipes in, in this house that we're in. There are pipes that run throughout the house that take cold water and hot water and put it exactly where you want it. But if those pipes break, okay, in the wintertime, sometimes you get frozen pipes. The pipes break here in New England. Those pipes break and water starts spraying all over the place and it ruins the walls. You end up with mold problems or... If water, we were driving over here, and there was a giant, the, the, the traffic was, was all stopped up, and the, and the, and the, the main road was, was blocked off, and there's a giant hole there. And you know, I know what happens is it's a water main break. This happens all the time here in New England. We've got old, old pipes, and so they're digging a big hole to find the pipe and break it. Because water, 
when it's out of its bounds, when it's not controlled by the, the big pipes, the little pipes and the valves, water is incredibly destructive. And that's one of the things I learned as a water engineer. You better keep the water under control. And no matter what happens, you got to make sure the water never goes where it's not supposed to go. You've always got a backup. So to me, it's the same thing with water, with, with wine, with anger, is we have to keep tight control over. Remember it, in, in, the, uh, it's in the book of Acts where, where Paul was speaking, and he's speaking about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Okay, self-control over all of our appetites. Sexual attraction is not a bad thing. God put it into us. But if you don't keep it under control, meaning directed toward your spouse or to no one, basically, if you don't keep it under control, it will destroy you. Your lust will destroy you. So this is, to me, it's like this is, anger is not a bad thing, but I've seen tremendous, tremendous destruction caused by anger. So uh, anyway, I just, just wanted to touch on that because, because that's where, this is the basis for Paul's teaching on anger is this verse right here. In Psalm 4 and verse 6, it says, Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and hope in the Lord. Now, back at the time that David was writing this, the sacrifices the people would offer would be the bulls or the lambs or things like that, That's the, 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 or, or doves. People would offer animal sacrifices. And uh, one of the other Christian writers, Cyprian, is talking about this in Anicene Fathers, Volume 5, page 512. And he says, you know, there are many places in the Old Testament where it spoke about how even in the Old Testament, it pointed to the fact that greater sacrifices would be offered in the future. That just as the animal sacrifices were offered in the past, there will be another sacrifice, a better sacrifice will be offered in the future. And he, he gives several examples, and one of them is this verse right here, is where he quotes, he says, the offer the sacrifice of righteousness, that this is the better sacrifice that will be coming in the future. And I think this is what Peter is referring to, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, Coming to him, that's Christ, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, rather than righteousness being something that Christ gives to us and that with the, the by by imputation the picture that peter has is we are priests that are offering up a sacrifice to god and the sacrifice that we offer to god is righteousness this is what it's talking about offer the sacrifice of righteousness and hope in the lord so this is a it's a different way. This is, how, this is how we worship God, by living righteous lives and offering those things up to the Lord. Uh, and then the final point here, uh, verse 7, it says, There are many who will say, who say, who will show us good things. O Lord, the light of your face 
was stamped upon us. Mm-hmm. So this is the picture of the light of the face of God. That reminds me of so many mm-hmm. things in the New Testament. During the Lord's Supper, we were talking about the Lamb as being the light in the book of Revelation, the light in the city that shines and gives light to the city. So many places in the New Testament where Jesus is talked spoken of as the light that comes forth from God. And here it speaks, Lord, let the light, the light of your face was stamped upon us. So some of the early Christians, and particularly uh, Tertullian, wrote about this in uh, in Nicene Fathers, volume 3, page 454. I'll put that in the notes because uh, our time is limited. But all these, 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 these scriptures that talk about in the New Testament that he is the light that's come into the world, that the, 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 the light has come into the darkness, that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is the, like the Jesus is the light that comes from God. No one can see the Father but we can see the sun, who is the radiance of his glory. So this is the picture that Jesus is the light of the world, the light of the face of God that is to come out in the future. And then in the closing, it says, I will both sleep and rest in peace, for you alone, O Lord, cause me to dwell in hope. And the, the, you know, as we mentioned in, in uh in uh, Psalm 3 is that many places in the scriptures where it talks about sleeping, it's talking about death. And so David is saying, I will sleep and rest in, rest in peace. You alone cause me to dwell in hope. And what is the hope that we have? And as we look forward to resting in peace and to our own repose, our hope is in the resurrection and the life to come. It is not in this life, Paul said, if only, 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope, we're going to be pitied more than all men. Is that this is the hope that we have, is what's going to come after death, after our time of sleep. Amen.